Hello, and welcome to the Plant a Trillion Tree podcast. I'm Eva Monheim. And I'm Hal Rosner. We're both certified arborists, credentialed by the International Society of Arboriculture. The purpose of our podcast is to encourage tree planting and proper tree care for our urban forest, which includes neighborhoods, parks, and other open space. We'll also cover the importance of the already existing tree cover and the benefits. So welcome, everybody. Thanks for joining us. This podcast is being recorded on January 27th, 2022. Joe Hansen is an ISA certified arborist municipal specialist, tree risk assessment qualified, and holds numerous certifications through the Tree Care Industry Association, including certified tree care safety professional, and is an approved instructor for the TCIA's Tree Care Academy. In his role as urban forester for the city of Park Ridge, Illinois, Joe is responsible for maintaining the urban forest, conducts parkway tree inspections, building plan reviews, assists with managing contracts, and enforces the tree preservation ordinance. In addition, he serves as chair of the Public Works Safety Committee. Outside of his duties with Park Ridge, Joe was recently elected the municipal director for the Illinois Arborist Association. And he is also a task specialist for the Urban Forest Strike Team in Illinois. The strike team conducts rapid tree assessments after storms to assist communities in need. He also produces a podcast called The Municipal Arborist, where he and guests discuss urban forestry and industry-related topics. He likes to share his experiences through training and public speaking engagements. Welcome to the Planet Trillion Trees podcast, Joe. We're delighted you could be with us today. Thank you very much for having me on. Your background is pretty amazing. And we want to find out as a municipal arborist, what are some of the challenges that you face within your community? Our community is an interesting one in that we're very well funded to begin with. And we have a lot of very proactive and progressive programs that we run. So I think some of the the issues that we encounter are ones that people are not thinking about until after they encounter them. So for example, we have a very well-funded uh, reforestation program. We're very well-funded as far as we're on a six-year cycle prune on all of our trees in the city, which is about 22,000. We have a pretty big time and material budget for off-cycle pruning and storm damage. Uh, we also have a very extensive tree preservation ordinance which also not only protects trees, but also requires replacement of trees that do meet the specifications for removal. So we're dealing with all of this and we're very proactive with everything. A lot of the problems we run into are issues more with residents and education. So I think like where the newer community to urban forestry may be trying to get their foot just in the door to maybe get a tree preservation ordinance going, for example. We have that ordinance going already, but now we're facing all these other issues with education on why we have this ordinance, which has been in place in some iteration for over 20 years. And then we also have issues since we're very proactive with everything, our residents seem, in my opinion, to expect more from us. 
So we have a lot of issues just trying to explain why we won't generically, for example, remove a limb that's over their driveway that they're afraid is going to fall on their house. Um, so trying to educate them as far as, you know, best arboricultural practices, research, and why we won't remove that branch that they're concerned about. Since we're certified arborists and track qualified, et cetera, and do tons of tree inspections and risk assessments, we can obviously look at that limb and determine there is no evidence of any defects, et cetera. So I would, I would like to kind of equate that to uh, someone who is a doctor and someone telling a doctor how to do surgery. Yeah, uh, that's that's what I would equate that to. And I always find it very odd as to why people tell arborists that have been trained and certified how to do their job. No more than they would want somebody telling them how to do their job. Absolutely. And I'm glad you guys are sticking to your guns because yeah. that is really important. This progressiveness in your community is not by accident. Um, Chicago has a very well-known history for loving, tree-loving people, green pe people. And having an ordinance that's 20 years old is pretty old for a city, knowing that there are so many cities that not only don't have plan, they certainly don't want to pay for an arborist, a, a municipal arborist. Sure. And, and they don't want to uh, look at green as infrastructure. So how do you relate that to your community uh, that it already knows that they have a, a plan? The, there, there's two ways that we, that we do it or that I like to explain it. The first thing to touch on the certified arborist part is we like to educate people on just the importance of using a certified arborist. So I try to equate it to them like hiring a licensed plumber or a civil engineer. I know it's slightly different, but it's still that same type of level of, of qualification. As far as trying to like reiterate it, it's just all the basic generic stuff that we all hear over and over again, but they don't hear. So back to the doctor thing, the doctor has to explain the same thing to a patient a million times. So I'm decent at trying to explain these uh, benefits that trees have, but I've gotten much better over the years of dealing with, I mean, I keep notes of every single person that I talk to in a spreadsheet because there's so many people that I talk to. So I know that I talk to, at least on the phone, a few thousand people a year, plus all the people out there. So all those people have gotten better at explaining the benefits and why, why the tree preservation is important. I get a lot, the, the tree is messy, so you have to prune the tree. This tree is messy. It's a silver maple or it's a honey locust. Well, you know, those trees are predisposed to small twig and branch failures because they have weak attachment points, et cetera. And then they're like, well, why did you plant the tree in the first place? And then it's trying to explain the curve of what we used to know and what we know now. And yes, you're absolutely correct. Those trees are not ideal species. However, we're not going to remove a tree unless there's something specifically wrong with it. But when the time does come to remove it, whether it's aged out due to maturity or storm damage, we're going to plant something that's better suited for this environment, not just the hardiness zone, but we're going to look at what the conditions in the parkway are, the traffic conditions, the sunlight conditions, and look at our inventory and what that biodiversity is like. So once I try to explain that, like, sure, we've done some things wrong in the past, but we're really trying to make things better, then most people will at least lighten up a little bit and kind of go with the flow of it. But it's, it's still difficult. And we live in kind of an upper middle class community. So people expect more from us. You know, the, the high taxes, they pay these high taxes. And I always try to 
politely throw back. It's the school district that have these high taxes for us, but we do the best with what we can and we're trying to make things better. So the next urban forester that comes in 30 years has a little bit of an easier job than I have right now. And the residents will all be happier and better. Hey, Joe, I wanted to stop just for a second, step away and hear how you found your way into arboriculture and uh, municipal forestry. And let me just say, I had the opportunity to take the Metra last fall. I was going up to see my brother in Woodstock, oh. looked out the window, and it's a truly beautiful community, along with your public transportation connection right into downtown Chicago. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Thank you. Um, my journey is an interesting one. So unrelated, my grandfather actually owned a tree company. I never met him. He passed away when I was a youngin. But I started in the trades background. So my uncle and my father were both in the trades. They were union carpenters. So when I was 18, I got into that with them. And I was just a un young, unguided youth. And I was not interested in buckling down in a career of carpentry. So I went my wayward ways for, through my early 20s and you know, eventually settled down. But I stuck with the trades. And then eventually during the recession in like 2008, nine-ish, I needed to start looking for a different career. So it was difficult. I didn't know exactly what I was going to do, but I was involved in mountain biking. And I started working with a volunteer organization here locally called uh, Camber, which is the Chicago area mountain bikers. And we did a ton of volunteer work with the Cook County Forest Preserves, where we built and maintained single track. And then we did some minor invasive species removal around the trails. So like honeysuckle, buckthorn, that sort of thing. And that got me interested more in the natural environment. I saw a forestry crew working and I was like, that's what I want to do. I want to work with those guys. So I saw what I needed to do, which was different licenses and certifications, et cetera. And I just kind of slowly built, built up my career, clawing my way, not necessarily up, but up with more knowledge. So that's terrific. Yeah. So Park Ridge, I think you said population about 38,000. Yes, correct. Is it rude for me to ask how that translates per capita? Um, I actually don't know off the top of my head okay. what, that, what that is, but I know that it's higher than most of the other suburbs in this area. It's okay. Still not like North Shore, like Highland Park, Glencoe sort of thing, but it's right. slightly... Uh, Getting close. That. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it sounds like you've uh, cut your teeth already on Emerald Ash Borer and had to go through that as far as... Uh, I'm assuming widespread removal, or were you able to do some treatments? How did, how, what was your approach to Emerald Ash Borer? Because I know it was really running roughshod through the North Shore. Yeah, so our, our community was one of the many who just uh, perform removals. Um, interestingly enough, at, you know, at that time when I started at the Forest Preserves, it was just removals. So there was still a lot of research being done in that area. So that would have been like 2011, 2012. Um, there's still a lot of research at that time as to what was actually going to work as far as injections and everything. So there were a number of cities around here, Naperville, for example, injected, and they were very successful at it. And I actually cut my teeth doing removals. I mean, I used to go to work every day and remove like 50 ash trees, you know, in the forest preserves. That's how I learned to sling a chainsaw. Uh, for the city of Park Ridge, I think we were about 22 to 2,400 uh, ash that we removed. We still have about 200 left, and uh, not last summer, but the summer before I 
formed a survey where I went around and determined what trees were viable for treatment. And we actually added all these additional trees into our um, Dutch DED program. So um, oh, okay. now, now in addition to treating 400 trees every two years or 200 every other year, um, we're now treating like an additional 130 ash trees just to try to squeeze the last little bit of benefits out of them. That's great because then you have a seed bank. Right. For, and, you know, people don't realize, I remember when they were first, you know, when it first came here to Pennsylvania, the first thing they were saying is cut them all down, cut them all down, cut the ashes <laughs> down when they were alive and, you know, protect, you know, protect all the rest of them. And I'm like, that's the silliest thing I've ever heard of, because yeah. if you can preserve your seed store, yep, they're going to come back up after this wave of emerald ash bore comes through and right. they'll be gone. And they won't be as there won't be as many, but we'll still have them. Yes, exactly. That's important. So anytime I hear or get to speak with a person that an arborist such as yourself that's engaged with the planting, I mean that's that is ground zero for where my passion is. Part of me doing this podcast is I think psychotherapy for my guilt of taking <laughs> down so many trees. Yeah. And not replanting, you know. Yeah, because yeah. I'm in the private sector and we're just wired bass backwards. Yeah, um, yeah. Tell us about how you go about it at Park Ridge. I'm particularly interested in, did I read that you're, you partner with a local nursery? Is that right? Yeah, so that actually leads right back to EAB. So after we finished with those removals, which was before my time, we developed a, or the city did, a long-term idea to replant and re all of these ash that we removed. So what we did was there's a um, tree planting or a nursery consortium in the Chicago area. We know them. Yeah. So everyone pools together, et cetera. Um, we didn't particularly like that. There's a lot of issues with, you know, sometimes if you're trying to plant four, six, 800 trees, you may have to work with like four or five different nurseries sometimes to get what you want. And if you're not there early enough, then other cities have jumped it already and gotten all the good stock, quote unquote. Right. So with that, we decided to try to look at a long-term contract, which our city council at the time was not, you know, a fan of. Our city is more of a fan of the one plus one plus one, you know, one year plus one extension plus one. Um, but our city forester was able to sell them on a five-year uh, contract with the nursery for 600 trees a year, which would have replaced all the ash that we lost, plus then some more. So we worked through that five-year contract, and we actually just renewed a new one for this fiscal year for another five years, um, slightly lower numbers. You know, we go out to bid and everything for it. So basically what we do is we supply them with a list of species that we want. I think we have like 120 or 130 species on it. And then, you know, they give us a list every, before each season to let us know like what's calipered up to our size. And then we go out to the nursery, check on the stock. We tag every single tree that we want, all of them. So all 600 trees, we're tagging them. And then we're trying to diversify, obviously. So we may only do 10 of a species or 20 of a species, and then that's it. So we're trying to plant a lot, but then we're also running into other kind of issues where you would think immediately like, well, we're planting a lot of trees in a smaller area. So maybe our age diversity isn't going to be so great. But um, the city forester has actually broken down everything by zone and the percentage changes in not only diversity, but also age diversity is very minimal. I mean, you're talking like 0.0 and then whatever the percent is going to be. Um, mm. 
So what, what, what the good thing is, is we have a, a nursery that we're able to work with. We try to get them to correct problems, but there's a lot of, you know, age old industry issues with the nurseries that just can't be solved by us pointing fingers and telling them, but we try that we try and they work with us. Man, one of the big things they like love hacking away like honey locusts. I don't know why, but we've turned away so many honey locusts. Oh, hard reduction, you mean? Yes. Yeah. I mean, they look. I don't understand it. I don't understand that. (laughs) It's it's like the, the distance that they're planting them together. And then they start, I mean, they grow, they grow so fast. So they're not, they're not able to stay straight up or whatever at the nursery. So, but they're just over pruning. And it's interesting. You can tell when you're going through different blocks, you can tell like the, the, the level of education with whoever's out there, the nursery men that are pruning, you know, so like you can look down a line and see that this one guy walks straight down this line of 150 trees, but the line right next to it looks totally different. Just the people that are doing it. And that the problem is, is obviously once it's done, there's not really much you can you can do about it. But luckily to that end, the nursery that we're working with is very large. They have a ton of trees, ton of acreage. So if we see something we don't like, say we're going to get 20 honey locusts or something. Okay, we'll just nix it and then we'll go look at a block to something else and add it in. So it gives us a lot of flexibility. And then it also gives us the security that we know that we're going to get trees that we want. And then also since it's a five-year contract, there may be a couple species on the list that we really want that they don't have available yet. Well, now they can plan ahead for what we actually want and they know that we're actually going to buy it. They're not rolling the dice on, is someone going to buy this particular species or cultivar or whatever? Right. So your standards that you have, do you give them your standards that you want? Yeah. They still don't meet that. We've tried to put away specific blocks just for us. And I know that they, even after you've tagged a tree, they'll probably take your tag off and put it on a different tree. I mean, we have like, we have security lock tags that we pay extra for that we order somewhere else online. But the reason I know they do that is because I'm sure every nursery does that and they don't want to admit to it. But the reason that I know is because we'll be out at a nursery and I'll joke like, oh, that tree looks great. I wish we could have had that one. They're like, oh, it's okay. It's for whatever. Just put yours on it. So I'm, (laughs) I'm helping. I'm aiding in that issue by trying to get the better tree. But you know what, it may be like in that case for us, it may be like some, I don't want to put names out there, but let's say it's like a state contract or something. Maybe the state's ordering 20,000 trees and they're just putting them on the side of the highway and no one's actually looking at them. And they're like, oh, okay, well, we'll give them to Park Ridge because they will take care of them better. I don't know, just theorizing, but it, but it's a problem for sure. I think that people should know about it. And when people are buying trees, uh, you know, they should always be going out and looking at them and not yeah. take anything that is that is not acceptable, that you do not want to have a problem with. I mean, we had that problem in our own community where I said, I'll go out and check the trees. And the landscape architect said, no, she'll go out and check them. Well, she had no idea what she was looking at. Right. And I will honestly tell you, we got crap. And she accepted them. And, and what happened was we had to work with them for five years with volunteers to get them back to oh, something yeah. that was amply acceptable. <laughs> Yeah. How, how does that happen? I guess I should have said this that when you asked the question about some of our obstacles that we have, that's actually our biggest issue, in my opinion, I guess, I should have said it, is tree planting. It's not just the way they're grown and pruned at the nursery. It's also the planters. You know what I mean? The with These guys that come and plant, it amazes me that some of these contractors plant thousands and thousands and thousands of trees a year 
And I can barely explain to them that they need to expose the root flare. It's like uh, speaking a foreign, I mean, sometimes it is a foreign language, but it is like speaking a foreign language to them. And I, I just don't understand, you know, we go to conferences and training and everyone's preaching. You got to do it this way. You got to do it this way. But out there in the real world, people really aren't doing it that way. And I don't know why there isn't more of a fight because we fight. Our planting specifications with our planting contractor are very clear and we're with them probably 95% of the, each tree that goes in the ground, inspecting it and making sure that we're getting what we're paying for and that it's being planted properly. And that's a whole nother set of issues then deal, dealing with residents that don't want trees. I don't want a tree. I don't want a tree. Well, you know, I'm sorry, it's city property. You don't have a choice, you know, and luckily our council and everything, our aldermen back us. So it's not political. You know, it's not like city of Chicago where you can call up your alderman and your alderman can get something done. In our city, it's, they leave it to staff and all our staff, not just arborists, our engineers and everybody are professional and we do things consistently, correctly to make it better for the community, basically. What you're telling me kind of reminds me of a, a student I had in one of my classes at Longwood Gardens. He said, we hired this contractor to plant the trees and it was in the state of Delaware and I think it was in Wilmington. Mm -hmm. And um, he said, I come back to the to the site to look at the trees. And he said, it's clear that they left the burlap on, they mm -hmm. left the cages on, and they staked them improperly. So <laughs> what's the point of even staking them if you're going to leave all that stuff on? Right. OK, so what he said to the guy is he said, you saw our paperwork. Our paperwork said, remove the burlap, remove the cage and put the stakes in properly. And the guy said, oh, well, you know, it takes so much time. And, then, and, then. <laughs> and so the guy Jeez. said, when I come back, I want you to have hung all the cages and the burlap onto the stakes so that I can see. <laughs> That's great. That's good. So, That's awesome. so he came back and the guy <laughs> said, I can't believe you made us do that. And he said, and let me tell you something, and I will never hire you again. Wow. And I'll make sure that I tell everyone else not to hire you again. Good, good. He said it was it was the most empowering moment in his his career because he <laughs> just had it up to his neck, you know, with yeah. with poor planners. <laughs> We're on to something here, Eva and and Joe, which is Joe's telling about the headaches with the nursery that sounds like they have a great contract with a solid municipality, and then. We all have our headaches with the sub, the contractors that we use for planting. So there's a disconnect. And whereas here's a screen full of informed arborists, uh, you know, that know how to plant correctly. We need that mycelium or root grafting. We need to reach out to these other trades. Mm -hmm. And it, it seems like it's been going on for decades, right? Yeah. These Absolutely. types of product problems and headaches and substandard work. And it, it hurts financially and it hurts in terms of our profession when trees get planted and then, and then they die or trees get planted and they incorrectly and they have failure to thrive their whole life. Well, and also the longevity of that tree. Yeah. I mean, you have, right. you have, a, you have a contract with this company they should be doing everything possible to please you as a client so yes. that they get you back again and again and again. What is the disconnect that does not 
make them want to do that properly? What is the disconnect? What, what, how do we, how do we get through to people who are nursery people to say, you know, you're going to get a contract every year. Somebody's going to take 600 trees from you. That's a lot of trees. Yeah. You're paying a lot of money for them. How can I be assured that you're going to give me what I want? It's turning into psychotherapy, Joe. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> I mean, we, our contracts and every municipal contract should have an escape plan. Right. So our contracts are pretty clear that we can walk away not only at any time, but even though we've signed this contract for 600 trees a year, we could, it's written in a, such a way that we can just say, we're not getting any trees this season because they look like crap. Hopefully that would steer them right. And as far as our nursery goes, we've never had enough issue to where we would need to do that. The bigger problem, in my opinion, is with the planting contractors and people not overseeing what they're doing and necessarily following through. And there are a lot of people that will go and look after the fact and see if they were planted, but that doesn't necessarily tell the whole picture. And just to be clear, we're not planting our trees 100% the way textbook either. And that's also a monetary reason. And it's also a, there's just not enough time in the day to do all the things we have to do and then follow up with that. So for example, the way that we plant is we don't remove the entire basket. We cut the top ring off. So we're doing, you know, two to three inch caliper trees. So 24 inch basket, we're cutting only the top ring off. So there's typically two rings on a basket that size, cut the top ring off, set the tree in the hole, expose the root flare to make sure we're set right. And then we cut off all that top burlap. So the bottom burlap is still there, but all the top is gone. And the reason that we do it this way is we found this balance of exactly how we're supposed to be planting and what really can happen out in the field to do things, not just quickly and efficiently, but also to try to set the tree up for lower mortality. The, the problem is, is if you remove that entire uh, basket and remove all of, uh, remove everything, let's say, there's no stability left in that root ball because the, the root ball has been moved, you know, six or 10 times from the time it's been dug at the nursery. And since you have all that additional uh, soil on top of, to, uh, you have all that additional soil on top of the root ball to expose where the root flare is. When that tree was dug at the nursery, it was already dug too shallow to begin with, right? So if you remove all of that mass from the top of the root ball and then you set it in and then you don't stake it because we can't stake 600 trees and then follow through with the, the maintenance and removal on, on them. It just, it doesn't, it doesn't, it just doesn't work in that type of scaled up sense. So like we need more money and we need more people. So we found this median again, where we're just removing the top ring off the basket, which is half. And then we're removing the burlap and our mortality rate is like two and a half percent, um, at least for what we've been planting for the last five years. So it's still, in our opinion, pretty good. We'll see long-term we're still doing so much better than they were doing than people in our positions were doing a hundred years ago, right? We have to do things incrementally and we can't just flip a switch and make things, you know, perfect from the get go, even though that's what we should all strive for. So I know probably a lot of people don't like to hear that we're in this median of not planting exactly to, to spec of what a textbook says, but it's, it's our happy meeting and it is bringing us closer to the next generation is going to do it even better and even better. We had another uh, person say we can hire like a part-time arborist 
to follow up with that and other millions of things that we can think of, it would be different. Then we can get a little bit of extra money for staking. For example, we could stop installing gator bags on our trees and save a ton of money and put that into staking maybe. Maybe that's an, maybe that's a good option. Because right now we're spending, you know, gator bag, I think when you order them at that quantity, I think we're spending about $15, 15 or $18 per gator bag when probably 10% of the residents are actually using them. But we still do it because we want to provide them with that opportunity. And the other thing is, is we can't afford to water 600 trees a year either, right? We've looked at the cost of it and the cost of watering every single tree is more than unfortunately the cost of replacing the ones that did die. So that's a whole nother separate set of conversation, right? So if our mortality rate for one entire year, let's just say is 2%, it doesn't financially make sense to spend all of this extra money to water these trees that aren't dying don't forget the trees are infrastructure. So Absolutely. if we talk about infrastructure, if a plumber came in and didn't do his due diligence the way it's supposed to be done, he would get hauled on the carpet for it. Yeah. And he's going to charge what he needs to charge to cover his butt. Yeah. Why are we giving false, false monetary, well, yeah. fa false budgets for something yeah. that costs more? Right. Is it that we're that stupid as a, as a, people that we don't <laughs> want to take on the responsibility of keeping our environment healthy because we're too cheap because we would rather yeah. we would rather spend it on god knows what that is not helping anybody i'm really passionate about it and sure. i would rather put in a smaller tree and plant it right or bare root tree where one person can plant it or have a group of volunteers come in like we have here in Philadelphia of tree tenders and everybody learns how to plant a tree properly. Yeah. But rather have something like that than do things half ass. Yeah. I understand. I understand. Yeah. And it's and it's sad. It's not I'm not trying to make No, I understand. Feel, but but the fact of the matter is that I don't think we're we're all honest with each other when we work with one another and expect certain things and ask for certain qualifiers and standards when we don't want to meet the standard or we can't meet the standard because we know that there's not enough money there. We're just not being honest. We're no, we're not. And you're right. I mean, it is a, it is a complete, it's industry wide and it's not just municipal or private or it's, or nurseries or any it's, it's, it's everybody everyone in the industry needs to pick a path when they start and they can change obviously whenever they want and they need to stick to it. And we need more passionate people. I'm incredibly passionate. You know, I'm sitting here telling you that we don't always plant trees exactly the way that we should, but I can tell you that we're doing better than most, almost everybody. As well, far and, as I, and, I, and I know, know that from, from what I was saying. Yeah. The biggest problem that I have is when we're at a conference or something and there's somebody telling us how to, Plant, plant a tree in their program. And you'll have 150 people all like nodding their heads like, yeah, yeah, and they're all talking about it. But the Chicago is very unique, I think, in, in the world and the country in that almost everyone around here, all of our communities have arborists or city foresters, at least like in the Northwest and West, Western suburbs. That's true. We're very proactive, right? And we're all planting at the same time. We're all ordering from like the same 10 or 12 nurseries. So 
we all are driving through each other's communities watching what everyone's doing. And it's just funny. Like we're, when we're all together, it's like, yeah, we're all on this path. And when we're all, when we're all again, driving through, we'll see, like I had a couple of red buds planted a couple of years ago in my parkway and they were not planted the way that I would have liked, you know, like I was actually out there after they left and popped them up a little bit and cut off the burlap because it just, I, I didn't want to, it was like this weird balance. I didn't want to give them a hard time and like, you know, like flex and be like, I'm the forester from next door. You know, this is how you should plant a tree. So I asked them, I told them what I wanted. They kind of like met me in the middle again, language barrier issue too. And um, I had to go back later that afternoon and fix it up a little bit. But the the tree planting thing is the bigger is the bigger picture that I think a lot of people talk about, but we're not really thinking ahead. So right now it's uh, we have to plant trees. We have to plant trees like C CRTI. We do work with CRTI and that's that's the big push. Remove invasives, plant trees. I don't think that the industry, even in this area, is set up for the this percentage canopy cover push that that we're aiming for. In the back of our heads, I think everyone's kind of like, oh, how are we going to really actually do this? Yeah. Yeah, we do. Yeah, we do have a tree shortage. We have a tree shortage. Uh, every community in this area next year was jumped on board to CRTI, which everyone's already uh, like a partner, basically. But if every city council or village board was like, yeah, let's do this, we're going to give you all this money, everyone would be standing around with their hands in their pockets <laughs> because there just wouldn't be enough trees to plant or people to plant them and definitely not qualified people to plant them. CTRI for our guests that are listening, we had we had a woman that talked about that on our show. And uh, if you can tell our guests what that is again. Yeah, it's actually the CRTI, uh, the Chicago, CRTI. Uh, Chicago Region Trees Initiative. Right. Okay. Yeah. And that's basically. And that was uh, Melissa Custick. Melissa Custick. Yeah. Yes. And Custic, I, know, yes. I, I know Melissa, we've I've worked with her on a work group before and we really uh, yeah. amazing. It's an amazing organization. And, you know, Chicago, you, you really are way ahead of a lot of communities because mm -hmm. so many communities don't have municipal arborists hired. We even suggest sharing an arborist. Yeah. Different communities. Yeah. And also remembering my days in the Midwest um, and for our listeners, our worldwide listening audience, Chicago region, the Midwest, has amazing soil for starting up a nursery or nurseries that have been around for a real long time. Uh, I believe it's mostly a loamy, a deep loamy soil, right, Joe? Yeah, and then, I mean, a lot of, some areas get a lot of clay, which which is bad. It kind of really depends. Our, the Chicago and Cook County area is one of the most diverse regions in the entire country with the little bit of woodlands that we have that kind of ran ran through the rivers and everything. And then with all of the savannas and the prairie, at least in the past, before we came in, the, all of these different insects and plant life were able to come and just thrive here. And the soil and just the hardiness of the region, it made it like that. And luckily we had the Cook County Forest Preserve here who was pre preserved about 70,000 acres of land and they're trying to restore a lot of it too. Unfortunately, that's where a lot of that buckthorn and invasives are as well. But it's even more important that we try to keep what we have and try to restore what we can because so much of that is already gone. I don't quote me exactly on this, but I think uh, Illinois was like 97% prairie. And right now it's like less than one-tenth of 1% 1 is what's remaining. And so we're like way behind and we're never going to get anywhere near that back again. But the, the tree in the parkway is a tiny, tiny, tiny piece of that puzzle. 
And the more of them that we have, the more that that connects with the actual natural areas. So it's going to allow that biodiversity of the insects and everything and the animals and everyone, everyone's more, everything's all connected. Everything's healthier, which makes us healthier. So educating the public on that is a whole nother story, but I think we are getting better at it. And luckily with the green push in the past two decades, the public's ears are open to it. We just need a, a, need a way to, you know, get that to them. Eva mentioned uh, Pennsylvania Horticulture Society's Tree Tenders Program, and then the city of Philadelphia has Tree Philly. So between those two organizations, we actually have a core of citizen arborists that, you know, they know the fundamentals of mm -hmm. what a properly planted tree looks like and, and how, what it's going to need in the first few years after it's planted. And I think that is one of the solutions that is kind of right under our nose and that Philadelphia has been having some su success. And quite honestly, it's a reaction to the reality that we're not a Rust Belt city, but we're a tired old city with uh, that's cash strapped. Uh, so citizens are taking it upon themselves, luckily with these great programs, to get a lot of trees planted. Yeah, and that's that's key and it's hugely important because it adds value then back into the community. It's not just that monetary value that the city is saying, okay, we're going to throw all this money and do all this stuff for you. Once the community starts getting their hands dirty and, you know, the, it becomes part of their soul, right? And then they're going to try to share that with whoever else, even if it's, you know, their neighbor, whoever they go to coffee with and say, oh, this weekend I went out and did this. And they, that may plant a little seed in their head too. And then all of that, it's a big circular thing, right? So then if all these more people get passionate about it, maybe they then are going to the cities and communities and asking for more money and more support. And it just, it's more, it's more natural and it's, it's ultimately hugely beneficial. We're backwards. So like I said, we're upper middle class and we have the, the, the money to do these things. Our city's had an arborist since the sixties or a forester, city forester since the sixties. We need to find a way in our city to try to get to that without having all these people running around calling me and telling me exactly what to do. That's like what kind of worries me. Now, I think I'd be more beneficial if I can go to a city and start from scratch. Like if I left where I'm at now and I went somewhere and started from scratch, I think I could be hugely beneficial in helping get it going because I've already done all these other things. Um, but then I'd also kind of learn with the community, like how we can build this up this thing up together. So have you thought about relocating to Philadelphia? <laughs> what would it take to get you out of here? Honestly, I, I would love to leave Illinois. I really love Missouri to tell you the truth, but for family reasons, I'm pretty much stuck here for at least another 10 or 15 years till my kids get out of school. <laughs> Always being honest, you know, um, you were talking about the prairie and I was thinking about the historical significance of Chicago back at the turn of the 20th century with, with cattle. And no wonder you didn't have a lot of forest and you had a lot of buckthorn because buckthorn was used to do the actual corralling for keeping the cattle in. So you're kind of telling us a, a lot of history without really telling us history, without saying it's history. <laughs> but I think Chicago has a really an amazing history because of their connection with the cattle industry and, mm -hmm. and all of that ground has been, it's flat and it, and it, it's part of it is glacial and you have all that wonderful um, soil there in lots of different types of soils. So how do you determine what you're going to plant 
And how do you determine what goes on your plant list? Our species list is basically straight from the Morton Arboretum that provides what will do well in this region. So like we can try to, we've tried experimenting with a couple different things, you know, due to climate change, but that's a very tiny number. So since we have this huge extensive list that we supply to the nursery, once they tell us what they have available from there, then we'll go out and again, select everything. So it's really dictated by what the nursery is going to have available, which luckily is still, again, we're only doing 10 or 20 of each species. As far as the planting sites go, it's pretty detailed. We have an up-to-date inventory in the city and every year we update a new zone prior to our cycle prune, just so we can get accurate numbers for budgeting reasons. And then also, you know, that updates the condition and everything too. But when we're planning for planting, we, we have a, a internal like GIS, which is separate from our tree inventory. And we developed a custom collector app for that. It's a Esri product. So we basically dump into this collector app, all of the addresses of everything we're planting, whether it's like a cost share tree or a complimentary tree. That goes in there, we'll go out, so it's all on, on our iPads and our trucks, so we'll go out, mark if it's complete, if a tree will fit there or not, et cetera, et cetera. Once everything is all planned out, I will actually sit at my desk, I'll look at my spreadsheet, and I'll say, okay, this address is supposed to get a medium-sized shade tree. So then I'll click on the site of my tree inventory, and then I'll look at it on Google Earth, and then I will, again, zoom out on the block, and I'll see what else we have there, and then I'll think about the sun and then I'll think about like traffic. So if it's a higher traffic street and it's a smaller parkway, parkway is going to get, get in dumped with salt, right? So I want something more hardy. And then I look at, you know, the direction of how the sun is going to be hitting it. So it's not like I'm spending 10 minutes on each and every site. Like when you're doing hundreds of them, you can kind of flip through them really quick. But I am actually looking at every single tree. And then I'm thinking about its shape, not only now, but what it's going to be like in the future. Then I'm also looking at maybe the condition of the tree next to it. How big is it? What's the age of it? Is that tree going to be here another 50 years? Do I have to think about that? Or is this a Norway maple that's like going to be dead in two anyway, so I don't have to worry so much. So our, our reforestation process, the planning starts about three months before the tree goes into the ground. So actually mm. this week we started working on the list and we're not going to be planting until like mid-April. So it's a very long and, and, and detailed process. That we are actually doing by the book. <laughs> well, and it's interesting because people people ask, what do horticulturalists do in the wintertime? I was like, oh, you have no idea. There's a lot yeah. going on in the wintertime. Yeah. <laughs> All the stuff we couldn't do in the summer. That's exactly right. That's yeah. just yeah. tons and tons of things that, that get done in it. And you think, oh, thank God I have the winter to do all this other stuff, because you, know? <laughs> you have such a long laundry list of things to do. Yeah. Um, and, you know, you're lucky that you have CRTI out there, but you're also lucky to have one of the, the best arboretums in the country yeah. uh, working with you. Um, Morton Arboretum's amazing. If any of our listeners ever get to Chicago, please go visit the Morton Arboretum. It's an amazing place, but it's good that you're getting information from them because they're the people to get it from, and it's fabulous. We've had some oak issues going on uh, regionally, so it's kind of nice like knowing these people personally because you can just call them on their cell phone and say, hey, I'm having this issue. And they're like, okay, I'll be up on at Tuesday at 11, you know, and they're just right there with you. And so to have that kind of world-class research facility and scientists, literally, to have that relationship with them and have them come out with you is amazing. I count, count my blessings every day on that stuff. But the other funny thing is too, is sometimes 
they'll come out and they'll be standing looking at it with you. And I'm thinking, I don't know what, what the heck it is I'm looking at. So I need some help. And then they'll come out and look at it and they'll be like, I don't know, could be this, could be that. <laughs> it's like, it's humbling standing next to them. But then when they don't know too, it makes me feel a little bit better. <laughs> it's like anything else that you can't know everything. I think that that's why having collaboration is really important. Yeah, and, and if two people don't know, and you're both coming from different organizations, uh, that tells you that there's something going on that maybe, you know, other people should know about. Mm -hmm. Yep. What, what's going on with your oaks? So we have an old oak stand on like the south and southwest side of town that would have been part of an old woodland uh, next to the Desplaines River. So they're all old, mature oaks, uh, mostly burr oaks, some whites, but it's mostly burr. And since I first started in 2017, we started seeing like anthracnos. But then over the years, it seemed to get worse. So then we started seeing like weird tip dieback and then more severe anthracnos in them. And it wasn't like making sense. So we had um, Trisha Bethke from the Morton Arboretum. She's the um, forest pest outreach coordinator, which I think is like a grant through the USDA. So she's supposed to be looking out for new pests and monitoring pests that we know about coming into different regions and coordinate that with the federal government. So we had her come out and look at it and she was like, I don't know, you know, and she took a bunch of pictures and was like, well, let's wait again and see till next year and we'll see what happens. And then on the third year, it was like severe dieback. And like these trees were like, some of them were like half dead. And I mean, these are like 200 year old bur oaks in a residential area that, you know, there's been a ton of different soil compaction going on and soil disruption due to construction. But this is like houses that were built, you know, 80 or 100 years ago. So that's not a direct link to what we're seeing. She ended up the next year having someone else come in, another uh, doctor, and he started doing uh, research with his intern. So what they did is they took a bunch of soil samples and they took a bunch of samples, uh, twig and leaf samples from the canopy of the tree, both on private trees and parkway trees. And what they found was it's some sort of root uptake issue. Um, it, they don't seem to know exactly if it's a specific fungus that's, that, that's causing it. But what they're seeing is, is up in the canopy, all the nutrients are not there and they're testing. And again, I'm not a scientist. I didn't go through an internship doing these types of tests. So I, I don't know all the correct yeah. vernacular, but from the samples that they took up, they're not seeing the nutrients that were available in the soil. So it's some sort of root uptake issue. So this year was year two, uh, next year will be year three and they're expanding out into some other communities. But what it seems to be is just like everything else, it's climatic, right? Um, rising, rising temperatures, extreme weather shifts. Um, in the Chicago area, we had three consecutive record-breaking springs uh, for rains, um, which that blew up all of our fungal disorders, like anthracnose, right? DED was like really bad for like two years, which was weird, especially in trees that we're treating. So, I mean, it's just like we have major issues with Norway maples and maples. They're reaching this age and maturity level where they just can't, they can't compete with, <laughs> with the climate anymore or their soil conditions and their issues that they're already predisposed with, with their roots, right? So they have these major root issues and then they're planted in compacted soil, tons of pollution, and they're just not great trees to begin with for this area. Um, so we're losing a ton of those actually too. And that's a bigger problem. I mean, the oaks are a huge problem because 
obviously we all know the oaks support such a diverse population of insects and everything and they're they're a keystone species so we can't we can't lose those but when we're losing all of these maples that's another major problem because people were planting maples around here like we have 40 percent maple population and all these maples start dying now we're losing canopy now we're fighting so it sounds great we're planting 600 trees a year, but now we're removing 450 or 500 trees a year, four or five years after the ash high has died off, right? So we've removed 2,300 ash trees and now we're removing 450 or 500 maples hmm. and we're planting 600 trees. We're not, we're not caught up to where we should be. And the, the maple thing is a regional thing for everybody here. It's not just our, our community. And what's doing it to the Norways? You know, so they're predisposed to girdling roots. And then we're putting those trees, or they were not we, they were placed into small parkways with compacted soil, right? And then we have all of these major climatic changes occurring over the last two decades, right at the same time that these trees are reaching a certain age. So say like 20, 24 inch or anything larger than that, they're just crashing. Like these trees, you'll look at, you'll look at a tree in the, in the summer, looks great. The next year, it's like stone dead, completely gone. You can actually see them in the spring. They'll leaf out, they'll look great, and you can see the progression of them just slowly start to die off and die back. So it's kind of like a blessing that we're losing all of these maples and these crappy trees that we don't want to begin with. Um, so it gives us an opportunity to diversify, but it's putting us in a big hole as far as obviously that canopy cover. We're losing too much canopy too fast. So is the Morton Arboretum giving you some guidance i think you touched on this as to species genus and species to consider in light of uh, your climatic zone and it, and the changes metro northwestern suburbs are facing oh i don't know that detailed if they are or not they probably move stuff from different hardiness zones that maybe that we should try or they recommend we can try yeah i think the most wild thing we're planting is like sometimes some sweet gum, you know, but that's difficult for like a park parkway tree. Um, but we're, we're more, we, we try to focus more on like traditional um, local species. Spring plantings are where it's at for me because that's where we're getting all, all of the, all of our oaks and everything like that. So where we plant a lot of different oaks in, in the, in the spring. I'm surprised. I'm surprised that you plant oaks in the spring because they're a, they're a fall lover. Well, I think you're supposed to dig them. I think they're only supposed to be dug in the spring, but planted in the fall. I don't come from the education, the educational side from college, so I don't know how that works. Like, do they dig them in the spring and then they sit around all season and then they plant them in the fall? I don't know, but I personally don't like trees that have been sitting around in a nursery because I don't know what's happened to them. So we yeah, only, no, we, I agree we, with you. So we only dig them and they're only dug in the spring in this area. That's the only time they'll dig them. I mean, I guess if you tell really? the nursery, if you tell the nursery to pull them out in the fall, they will. But yeah, the oaks were, they're only getting dug in the spring around here. So that's pretty much the only time anyone's planting them. What elms are the, is the Morton Arboretum touting? They're, they're always gung ho with two or three introductions. Is there anything that they, are suggesting that you uh, have used per their recommendation? I don't know what they're saying right now, to tell you the truth. But okay. I, I have a list right here of one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine different 
uh, hybrid elms that we plant. Oh, that's a, a nice that that nice we plant that we, we plant a lot of. Um, I love the elms; they do really well for us. They're like incredibly hardy. The only thing is they require a lot of maintenance early on because they grow so quick. Right. All those codoms and everything. So, um, but I, I love the elms. That's what I always recommend to people when they call and they say, what tree should I pick? I say, well, I look at the elms. They grow at a nice cliff. They require a little more maintenance, but they're nice and hardy and they're great looking trees. Fantastic. So Joe, what is your, not just your favorite tree, but do you have any kind of mystical, metaphysical, spiritual connection with any of these trees when you're out in the nurseries or driving home at night? So <laughs> I have a two-part answer for that. The first is, back to London plane trees, I, I like sycamores. Um, okay, so my father-in-law, before he passed away, um, took a twig off of a sycamore in his parkway that his father-in-law planted for him. And cultivated it in, into a, a tree through grafting. And before he died, we planted it in my backyard. So like, that was great. My kids were a part of that planting. And every year we take a picture of them with that tree. So uh, great. I already love those trees to begin with. So that was, you know, that's just awesome. So I, I love yeah. those trees and it's a straight sycamore too. It's not a London plane tree, but nice. I couldn't tell from a hundred feet away, but I know just based on its age that it's a sycamore. Um, as far as my favorite tree, what I really have liked planting around here lately is a hornbeam, a cultivar called Firespire. Um, I'm not sure the uh, scientific name for it, but I know it's a Firespire hornbeam. And what I like about them are in parkway trees, we're dealing with so much overhead and underground infrastructure. We have to think about when we're planning for our planting, how are we going to fit these trees into this puzzle of not what they are now, but what they are going to be at maturity. The fire spire hornbeam is more of like a columnar tree, so it's more upright. It doesn't grow as wide, but it grows tall. I think it grows like 35 feet or something. So it's this great like medium-sized trees that'll help plug in the holes, provide us this canopy cover, and they also have nice fall color and they they look great. And hornbeams in this area, that's another tree that we have pretty pretty good success with. So that's one of my favorite. Carpinus. Okay, there you go. <laughs> Thank you. Yep. Well, it was a real delight to have you on our podcast. We were thrilled that we could get you on and to hear about all the wonderful work you're doing in your area and, and right outside of Chicago. We also know that you have a podcast, so we wish you success with that as well. And yeah, it was really great talking with you and hearing your journey. Yeah, thank you so much for having me on the show. I really appreciate it. And it was really fun talking to you guys. Yeah, Joe, thanks for all your good work out there. I'm, I'll be passing through Park Ridge. <laughs> No doubt. Yeah, if you guys are ever in the area, let me know. I'll have you, have you on my show. <laughs> That'd be great. We need to take the podcast on the road. Well, thanks again. We really do thanks, appreciate Joe. it. Thanks, Joe. Okay, we'll thanks, guys. Great meeting you guys. Have a good day. The Planetrillion Trees podcast is edited by Andromedan Recordings in Hollywood, California.